Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, one of today's co-hosts and co-founder of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise in order to accelerate development. I'm excited to welcome Ethan Perlstein, founder and CEO of Parlara, and the original Cure Sherpa. Thanks for joining us today, Ethan. Thank you both for inviting me on the show. Great. So we'd love to start off and learn about the arc of your career and how you got to what you're working on today. Yeah, it really starts back in grad school when I didn't have a notion of being an entrepreneur at all. I thought, thought I wanted to be a professor and go down that track. And through a series of events, including getting on Twitter about 10 years ago and realizing there were a lot of people who were showing the way of entrepreneurship. And at that time, you know, the Jobs Act was just being signed. This is like the 2012 period. Startups were seemingly on the tip of everybody's tongue. I was big time watching, you know, Shark Tank. And that's kind of how I learned how to negotiate. Coming from academia, I didn't know anything about the real world. So yeah, I come from this academic background, but through sort of what I call the postdocalypse, which was this systemic oversupply of postdocs relative to academic tenure track positions. You know, I tweeted very vociferously about this, you know, back in the day. And I kind of found my new tribe of entrepreneurs and startup folks in California when I left the East Coast, left sort of the Ivy League uh, training grounds where I had spent my time and where there wasn't much love for startups at that time and came out West and decided I was going to do something less risky than, get a, than getting an academic job, which was start a company because we all know that half the companies fail, but I obviously didn't think about it that way. I just saw this as oh, this is a chance for me to maybe find my calling because I always found certain aspects of academia grading and, and not really enjoyable. And then I conversely found aspects of, I didn't really know it at the time, but I was running my own little group at Princeton as an independent fellow, but I was actually running a startup. I didn't really put two and two together at the time, but that's what I was doing. And I really loved the building process. And then when I moved out to California in 2013, I thought, these are my people <laughs> and uh, spent about a year trying to figure out how do I start what at the time I was calling Pearlstein Lab? Because honestly, I it wasn't for vanity. It was because I just wasn't very creative and didn't know what else to call it. And thought if I was in academia, it would be called the Pearlstein Lab. And no one sort of said, you're an egomaniac if you call your lab after yourself in academia. So, But I knew I wanted to also be a public benefit company and we can kind of get into that. But I had a vision for what I wanted to build and calling it Pearlstein Lab. It became Perlara a few years later. But the company launched in early 2014 as the first biotech public benefit corporation, or PBC. And the mission was really clear to work with highly motivated, highly entrepreneurial families and foundations that were battling a disease on the long tail of diseases, and they needed help. So I wanted to build a business that would partner with folks like this because I just felt it could move mountains. These, these parents were just not taking no for an answer. And I just thought, I want to partner with them. That's what patient-centric really means to me. So Perlara got started and what I call Perlara One had a, had a run from 2014 to 2019. And that was sort of 
built in the mold of a traditional centralized biotech startup where your lab and your office were next to each other in the same space. And you were either in Boston or the Bay Area because that's where all the VCs were and that's where all the talent was. And that's what you were told to do. And you know, we set up a bunch of partnerships because as a platform startup, you're supposed to set up partnerships and got one with Novartis and did all these kind of checkbox exercises. And then we finally found our groove, just really working with, again, these special families where the science ends up working out and the relationship just works out where you can form a real business joint venture. And so Polar One kind of culminated with this one partnership and this one project really aligning on all fronts. And everything else didn't quite work. I honestly couldn't sustain the business operating in the Barry. And so I had to virtualize the company and let go of the Polaro One team. And you know, it's a process I talked a lot about and happy to, to revisit that for the learning purposes and also because I think it's an important part of my founder DNA. But in the last two years, and COVID played a role in this too, like it played a, a role in upheaving a lot of people's lives and making people maybe choose one path versus another on that crossroads of life. But yeah, Perlara 2 is now officially on the scene as the first DBI or decentralized biotech. Yeah, I'm curious in the first phase of Perlara, as you talked about it, you mentioned learnings. What were you know, some of those perhaps flashpoints or inflection points along the way that in retrospect you know, seem obvious to you or perhaps may not seem obvious to others that are stuck on the same treadmill that you might have been? Well, I guess what I would say is the biggest learning was that as much as I wanted to be different from all other companies and all our biotechs and had this new business model, had a public benefit company structure, was very vocal on social media, was very into you know open science. As much as I was like unconventional in that way, I ended up being very conventional when it came to fundraising in the sense of not my cap table. A cap table ended up being very unusual, but the fact that you called it a treadmill, I, I would call it more of like you know, academia has publish or perish. And then in start high growth potential startups, you know, corn potential startups, or when you are platform aspiring startups, you feel that same pressure. So I think that in retrospect, the biggest learning was I should have tuned all that out. I shouldn't have compared myself to peer companies and said, well, at each stage of growth of the company, like where are they and where am I? And like, you know, when little kids are looking at, you know, how tall they are. And, and like, I think I got too much into that. And in the end, didn't know how to tell a story that when I got locked into this BBC path where it was either you do this or, you know, you got to grow this thing way more slowly, way more cautiously. And I kind of, at each step, kept locking myself into a path where you had to get a VC round. Otherwise, there was basically little room for an alternative. So in retrospect, I regret that I kind of caved to that pressure or just didn't know better that I should have had the discipline to tune that out. And there were examples, either they're very rare, but there were a handful of companies that did seemingly pull that off. And I was always like, how did they figure that out? You know, at the time I was like, well, they don't know what they're doing. They're missing out or whatever. Like, how come they haven't left their incubator space yet to get their own space? Like, all things that were in the end complete vanity metrics, but like these are the things that were you were kind of told were the signs that your startup was growing and was succeeding. I got way too wrapped up into that. And so now coming out the other side and building Flower 2, I flipped the switch of the direction. Now I don't need any external capital at all because I'm building the business through revenue and the business model is profitable in economics now, which it never, ever did before. So I feel like I get to now run the whole tape again, but now without any of that pressure and the noise of fundraising and of filling out how to tell the story, you know, the tech VCs had one pitch and the biotech VCs went like this constant 
And there are plenty of examples of founders who, you know, very deftly pulled it off. And I, I wasn't able to do it. I kind of messed up and owned up that that was a failing of my part as CEO to not tell that story. But, you know, I think I'm not so hard on myself now. I look back and realize I think a lot of things we were doing were just sort of ahead of their time. And I think now the world is actually ready for them. Great. And so you've been thinking about the decentralization of biotech for some time, probably for much longer than most of our listeners. Perhaps you could set the stage of what decentralization of biotech is and what are perhaps some of the market forces that have led you to your current perspective. So, you know, decentralized biotech is most recognizable when you think about operations and how those have become decentralized, like the R&D operation of a biotech. In biotech, there's a word for this. It's called a virtual biotech. So this concept of like an executive C-suite that has an office park, you know, in like suburban Maryland, and they in license a bunch of assets from scientists they've never met in labs they've never been in, right? And then they manage trials because it's like to say these are clinical assets. They can manage those trials from that office park. So, you know, relying on CROs and contract manufacturers. Other. So there's nothing new about this concept of decentralizing operations. But I think you look at that example of virtual biotech and you realize, but the team isn't decentralized at all. The team is the same old, same old. It's usually the same kind of middle-aged, successfully, you know, exited biotech management professionals who fit a very strict kind of phenotypic profile. Maybe there's some remote thrown in now, but like otherwise, there was still this mindset that, okay, you've got to hire these people, the, the right team full time, and they can be in an office that's physically separated from the lab. Like that was the extent of decentralization. And what I'm saying is you really want to go whole hog and go all the way in terms of operation, but most importantly, in terms of the team structure. What does that mean? So the way I'm kind of using Perlara as the example of this is that Perlara One was Everyone was an FTE, right? The whole point was headcount, headcount, headcount. Like, how do you grow your headcount? What your headcount was was like an indicate proxy for you know where you were in the company. But the assumption was everyone had to be hired full time, obviously. And of course, you had consultants and advisors, but those were people who like had some very narrow expertise that you only needed you know to help you submit something or for one objective. But otherwise, like the meter's running in terms of that's a full time employee every minute of every day. That meter's running, even if it's a forty hour business week, whatever. That meter's running all the time. And so the insight I had was, well, and again, it's not novel in general, but maybe novel to biotech is the idea of okay, let's think about this more as a marketplace. And so I'm the only FTE right now. And everyone else is a 1099. Everyone else is a contractor. But this is not like a gig economy. It's not a bunch of Lyft drivers, Uber drivers. What I have here is now a bunch of CureShirt, what I'm calling CureShirt. So these are individuals who are PhD scientists, and eventually we're going to figure out ways to maybe expand beyond PhD. But right now we're focused on PhD biomedical scientists who, most of them have a day job, but they all have something in common, which was they heard the call of Pilara and saying, we're looking for scientists who want to team up and work with families and help them up the mountain. And a lot of folks are like, I've got five, 10, 20 hours a week to spare. My employer is okay with this. This sounds great. I'd like to try this. And so that's where we get our team now. And so our team now is everything's been flipped. Instead of having this growing headcount of full-time employees with a little bit of part-time people to fill in kind of gaps, it's now we flip everything around. Say, well, everyone starts off as part-time or fractional on demand. And then there's a small cadre of full-time people that are actually more operations-based because this is a remote first effort now, right? Because if everybody's working essentially part-time, we don't need an office, we have Slack. And I can tell you how much it costs per square foot to rent a lab and office space in South San Francisco. And I can tell you it's a fraction of the cost, like orders of magnitude cheaper to have a seat at Slack or a user on G Suite, right? And that's now, everyone realizes this, right? This is not new to biotech, but I do think that biotech right now is not 
seizing on this very much because they're still living high on the hog of the centralized model, which is VC backed. And that's doing just great, right? Rounds have never been bigger. Valuations have never been bigger. That's all we keep hearing. IPO window in biotech has never been wider. So I'm kind of way on the other side here, away from that. But again, it's like a company's actually being built more with tools that like help get Uber going and Lyft going than it is like anything that's driving any traditional biotech company. That's interesting. You talked about your revenue model a little earlier, but how does running a company as a public benefit corporation change how you think about the financing? Well, another big learning from Polara 1.0 was that being a PBC, I don't think made a difference. So one thing to keep in mind is that Martin Shkreli, remember that guy? He was actually one of my first investors. <laughs> so that's the subject of another podcast, but he couldn't care less that we were a PBC. And at that time, this was February, 2014. That was a totally weird thing. Probably his New York lawyers were like, what the hell is this? It's <laughs> a PBC. But they didn't give us any pushback. And neither did he. I told him very clearly, and I communicated this to everybody, that we're a PBC, which is our way of saying patient-centric, but meaning it and putting teeth behind it. Not just it's a talking point or it's an advertisement we buy on the Super Bowl. Like It's something that is like we live, breathe, and die. But investors honestly couldn't care less because from a legal point of view, a PBC is still a type of C-Corp. So we're a Delaware PBC, so we get all the benefits of being a Delaware corporation, but our articles of incorporation look a little different because there's a little extra language there that talks about this PBC business. But honestly, there's nothing else that goes with it. So it didn't change or inform, I think, anything about financing. And there was a while back then I thought, well, maybe some VCs would be like, is this just like a secret communist plot here? Are they really going to take my money and give it back to people? And my, I, that's my return. I was like, you know, and I thought that would be a concern. No, nobody cared about that either. Like it, it was literally like nobody cared. It just didn't make any impression. And so I've got some ideas about how we might fix that going forward. But honestly, I think part of the lesson takeaway here is that it didn't really matter to be a PBC. Not that many other companies have done it. There are some rare exceptions. And, you know, Mark Cuban has invested in us, but he's also invested in another PBC called Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Company. And he's very clearly stated multiple times he wants to disrupt the pharma industry. So I think he was an example of a rare investor that the PBC was probably like the selling point for him. <laughs> but that was like, that was it. Nobody else. I mean, Novartis is on our cap table. They could have cared less. All the tech investors, tech angels, they could have cared less. So I've got other ideas here about what is a better vehicle to reach or to achieve the aims that are set out in the PBC aspiration. But as I kind of just said, they didn't actually do anything in the real world. So I think I'm going to try to find another way. And I don't know if it's a DAO or some other way to set it up to achieve the true mission of the PBC. But at this point, I would say it didn't really make any difference. Now, I do want to one day take Perlar public if that's ever possible. So it does become the first actual public benefit corporation to just just to run the experiment through all the way to the end, because that's where the experiment was supposed to get interesting, because that's where it's like the clause there in your articles in corporation that protect you from, you know, a shareholder suing you for not maximizing profit, like that only can be tested in the real world. The company is actually public and in a private company, but no one's going to, no shareholder's going to raise a lawsuit against me. I, I, I essentially let all the investors in into the company. I want to kind of see how the experiment does play on the end, but honestly, I don't think it did what I wanted to do, which was spark a revolution of all these other PPCs flooding the market and causing change in a bottom-up way. And maybe that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So recently, there have been a lot of 
investors, traditionally software investors that have become biocurious. And it seems that you had folks on your cap table much earlier than the trend seemed to emerge in terms of folks that now are investing heavily into the development of therapeutics. I'm curious what you're seeing from a financing perspective in terms of trends that you're encouraged by, perhaps it's this one or others, and then also how that is impacting the velocity of startup creation and the dynamics involved in startup creation. I mean, there's just never been a better time to be a founder in biotech. There's just, and I see this now on the, uh, the solo VC. And so, yeah, there's just never been a better time to raise money for your idea. And, you know, there was no such thing as a pre-seed back in 2014. Like if someone had said that word, I would have thought that was a joke, right? Like, well, that's clever, but it's a thing now. <laughs> but that wasn't a thing back then. So the fact that you've got, and, and the fact that that now a pre-seed is considered half a million to a million dollars. That's a lot of money, especially if you're thinking you're starting that as one or two founders or three founders, and you're just doing everything super lean from the very outset and everything is like remote first. So yeah, so there's that just kind of generally speaking, there's just never been a better time, I think, to be raising capital or starting a biotech company. But you know, I think there's another spin on that, which is what's around the corner though, because what I'm talking about now is like the peak of the current system. Right, which is you know mostly kind of venture-backed deals, but it's also now this proliferation of early-stage capital. But it's still all fundamentally you know the traditional economy, right? What if we start thinking about crypto financing and, and where that's going? Like that's the one leg of the DeFi stool that I'm still sort of polishing and crafting and thinking about what the right experiments are. But I'll point to VitaDAO as an example of a, of an experiment that I'm paying close attention to. They're actually going to be on a show that I do on Clubhouse. But we're going to have the Vita Dow crew on to talk about what they've done in terms of figuring out a way to get IP, put it on chain, have it be kind of community owned, and then be able to vote on what kind of experiments and what kind of investments even to make. I really, really like that idea. I, I want to try to figure out how to do that with a family or foundations as part of Perlar 2 and what we're doing as we're spinning up these new projects and what we call guided cures. So I don't yet have an answer or an example of how we're doing like crypto financing or Web3 financing, but it's coming. I'm paying super close attention and BetaDAO is like going to be the playbook I'm, I'm going to run with, hopefully in the new year. So some companies were caught off guard by COVID and some have really embraced it and been able to succeed with all the restrictions that COVID has imposed. What trends do you see being accelerated during COVID? And what do you see sort of being held back? I'm focused on what I see kind of moving forward because I think, you know, my experience the last two years may be a little bit emblematic of the, the transitions people are kind of going through. You know, I kind of had to wind down Prolaro One in, in January 2019. And by that fall, I had started a new position as chief science officer of the Christopher Dana Reeve Foundation. And no one knew what was coming around the corner. And I was traveling in all the hotspots in January through March of 2020. And, and I was let go by the foundation because of the shock of uh, the system it sent to, to them. And many other nonprofits were also similarly, you know, had to kind of go into a retraction and, and kind of defensive posture to ride out the storm. You know, I wasn't there even a year before that was let go. I jumped onto a new, non another nonprofit that at the time was kind of quiet, but I started that position totally remote first. And that was in May of 2020. So that was already a sign to me of, okay, this is how things are going to work now is you don't have any expectation you're going to meet any of your coworkers in person or your bosses or your funders. You're just going to do everything like this. 
And unfortunately, that position also didn't last a year, and it was nothing to do with the pandemic. It was just that that nonprofit, its mission was going to be channeled to a for-profit instead. So it was more of a strategic change of plans. But that kind of left me thinking, well, two years and two jobs, <laughs> maybe I should go back to my original <laughs> job, which was which was Perlara. And I was like, maybe it's not a joke, because now seeing that this was now about a year ago and realizing, okay, after having listened to many people talk about the future of work and remote work and how those people all seem crazy in 2019, realized, oh, wow, of course they're right. And, and now we've, we've settled into this new normal. And then I think I remember seeing you know comments from people on Twitter like, you know, pay attention. A lot of interesting company formation happens in these periods here when you're coming out of like this kind of turbulent zone and this rebuilding zone. And I kind of took that to heart and thought, yeah, well, then maybe I can also rebuild now. And the pandemic has made it possible to deploy this Kir Sherpa model. And honestly, if I had tried to do this Kir Sherpa model, even in 2018, right before the pandemic, I'm not sure it would have worked because I think it would have been a great struggle to achieve any kind of cohesiveness and team culture without having everybody been acculturated to Zoom and Slack and all of that through the pandemic. Because that was always the hardest part of having a company and your consultants and your non-full-timers. Those, those people always were the hardest to integrate into the company culture. And now you're telling me you wanted to build a whole culture that way remote first. And it's not a, some tech company where that wouldn't have seemed so crazy in 2018, 2019. In biotech, it was still like, that's just insane. You can, you can have your research happen in other labs, but you, would, you have to build a full-time core set. Like that, that's just like the assumption. But I think COVID has now allowed people to relax those assumptions. And yeah, now... You know, I've got a, a team of 18 Cure Sherpas. So basically, the Perlara headcount is now bigger than it ever was before. And they were all onboarded within two or three months versus the other process was a gradual year after year of building up to this headcount, but it was also a massive liability on my balance sheet. And now the model is that if you have 1099s and not doing any work, there's no cost to that. There's only going to be a cost to working with those folks when they're actually working, when they're not working and they're idle, then there is no cost. So that model, that, that business model is so fundamentally different than the model. And again, it's a model that, that now tech companies are, and I think any company is kind of built into a native way, but biotech is just so slow to take on these changes in a systematic way. I do think COVID has given permission now in biotech, especially where you can build this remote first team and have true cohesiveness across multiple time zones. And like, it hasn't just fallen apart. Like it's actually, I had the same feeling of culture that I had when I had an in-person team. And I didn't think that was actually going to be possible. So to that point, Ethan, what are some tips that you might have for folks that are managing you know, remote teams around building culture? Because this is uh, certainly something that's been on my mind and many other founders' minds as well. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything more sophisticated than mission, right? And this is what I can report as real data. Like I talk to folks say, why are you a cure Sherpa? And you know, it's like the same answers over and over again. I want to feel like I can make a difference to a family or a foundation. I want my science to translate in the real world. That's another thing COVID has unleashed is this feeling of creative power among scientists, right? We created the medicines that saved the world. They came from, yes, computers were involved, of course. Yes, there's programmable medicines. But like scientists, you know, at Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech, like they are the ones who, it wasn't robots, it was scientists who saved the day. And computers help them and, and AI and whatever, that all played a role. But it was primarily the actor was the human scientists and teams of scientists. And I think the world seeing that, all scientists around the world seeing that happen, made every scientist maybe feel like, huh, maybe I can actually make impact in the world. And also maybe I want to make impact in the world. 
maybe I'm missing something by not trying to be involved in this kind of research that has direct translation impact where I could see the feedback cycle. I don't have all the answers for what is the right virtual gathering platform software. When do you integrate AR and VR? And everyone's talking about that. The nice thing is that now everyone's running those experiments and we're all going to be sharing data there. So I don't have to come up with the solution. All I know is that I've got the mission part done and I know that everyone who's bought in and, and as we start to recruit, it's the same story again, why people are being drawn to this and why they'll tolerate this being part-time or tolerate this being all remote because the mission is just something so alluring and so powerful that they need to be a part of it. And Ethan, let's talk about you know, what's next for Perlara 2.0 what diseases, if any, you're focusing on, and how can families that are interested learn more? Well, they can definitely go to Perlar.com. We're building out the site now page by page, but the core pieces are there. There's a page for families who want to learn more and go on a guided cure. And then there's a page for Cure Sherpas, who are the scientists who want to guide them up the mountain. So kind of like a two-sided marketplace. I think there's actually more sides that we can bring into this, which is where this gets really interesting, because we've got those Sherpas. Some of them are academic scientists who have a lab. And what if their lab can also now be part of our R&D supply chain. Some of these Sherpas work at companies. What if they can also use their role as a Sherpa as a kind of stealth BD role to let their parent company know what's going on in the cutting edge of rare diseases? So I see more kind of manifold marketplaces kind of emerging here. But the core one is families needing to go up the mountain and the Sherpas who take them up the mountain. So definitely check out the site if you're wanting to learn more. We're going to launch a new page soon called our Cure Roadmap page. Because what we're finding is that what a lot of families and foundations want, whether they're an N of one family or a league of extraordinary families or a foundation, they want a roadmap. They need to have a plan. And then we're also realizing other products we're going to start offering is sort of the, the Cure Roadshow. So at JP Morgan, we can now present our portfolio of families and foundations, which is a portfolio that is unique. No other company on earth has access or this kind of portfolio because these are the families that are overlooked because their disease is too small and they're not enough patients or all the excuses that we hear. But for me, the more these N of ones are invisible to pharma, the more excited I am, the more visible they become to me. And not every one of them is going to pop in terms of some outcome that affects some Alzheimer's or other big indication, but I bet you a bunch of them will. And so we're, we're excited to kind of now launch these Cure Roadmap projects and then also launch these Cure Roadshow efforts where Prolara acts as both your consultant and your agent to give visibility and vestibility to these communities battling a disease on the long tail. Great. Well, Ethan, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us today about your views around the decentralization of biotech and the work that you're pursuing at Perlara. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.